Hello and welcome to Unfertility, a podcast that is centered on breaking the silence, stigma and shame around unconventional fertility journeys through the voices of Black women. I'm your host, Noni, and I'm so glad you are tuned in as we hold space for my next guest. Hi, Belinda. Hi, Noni. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for being here. <laughs> great. That's great. So can you just introduce yourself? Who is Belinda? What do you do? And what is your sort of interest around this infertility, fertility kind of field? Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Belinda Coker. So uh, by background, I'm a, a doctor. I was born in the UK um, and I'm Ghanaian, so I'm British Ghanaian. I've been a doctor for 20 years and I've been a GP for really about half of that time. And my particular interest in in this field, I say in field, this area of infertility and, and recurrent miscarriage, and generally women's health actually has stemmed from one my background my initially trained in women's health and right from when I was a medical student I was always interested in this particular area but then I've had my personal my own personal um, journey was diagnosed well I was officially diagnosed with endometriosis when I was in my 30s but I you know suffered with with endometriosis symptoms from when I was uh, 10 years old um, and and I started treatment very early on. Um, I also have adenomyosis, and then I have a now eleven year history of infertility and recurrent miscarriage. So, kind of been through the long, well, still in the long journey. Um, but I've also set up as a result of of all of my experiences, my medical background, my um, my leadership background. I've set up um, a service to help other other women couples in in this particular who are going through this particular you know stressful mm-hmm. journey um really by providing support um mostly in the way of um a real one-to-one um support and that includes um a combination of admin of real really kind of deep deep diving into your own personal circumstances mm-hmm. providing referrals and providing general support and ability to ask questions is just kind of really he- helping you and holding holding you and being there as a support and as a, as a kind of mentor through the process. Yeah. Um, so called it coaching and concierge service and um, yeah, launched that this year. Oh, wonderful. It's really great what you're doing, by the way. And I, I wonder, how do you find the balance of separating your own kind of, you know, struggle and experience with infertility? the work that you're doing I imagine that must be quite difficult to always break the balance there are lots of times I mean there are, there are times where it can be because thinking about infertility a lot of, of the time when you're going through the own experience can be difficult can be tiring can be triggering but also it was it's exciting as well because I want to be able to help yeah other people in the same position and I'm still learning so much and you know that I've been a, as I said, I've been a doctor for a long time. So in throughout my whole career, I've helped women with with children. You don't have children, you know. It's 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 always been, it's always been there. So it's this isn't new. Anything you know, kind of new. I definitely had you know the ups and downs over the years, but but this feels like the the right, has the right fit. Um, and I feel like this is where my journey has led me actually to yeah. do this. So. Did you feel rather that you had the support at the time? 
During my my infertility journey, no. I mean, part of it is that I didn't think I needed it. Mm. And it went on for longer than I expected. Still going on, I would never have even expected this. Yeah. You know, I didn't anticipate it to go on for so long. I figured I could fix it, fix it, because, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that will just work and achieve and, and get through anything. I figured yeah. everything could be controlled in some some sense. And and I suppose we had a lot of other, you know, personal problems. My mum was sick and, you know, we had a, quite a number of family deaths. And I think all of that added to the, the burden of just, you know, dealing with with the journey. So so no, obviously because of my background, I do know more than maybe most, you know, I wasn't stepping in with with no knowledge of fertility treatments or of when to seek help or whatever. But I think part of it was that I, I just thought, well, it's me, you know, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> We're going to be okay. I'm going to get through this. You know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And then uh, as year went on and losing the babies as well, I think that was, I just hadn't been expecting that. And I didn't expect year after year, just feel that, that loss, that the grief is just ongoing. So just, I want to follow up on what you said about you you thought you didn't need that kind of support. And, and, you know, based on the context of what we're going to discuss today, do you think that that's what a lot of women, I mean, in your experience, you think a lot of women are sort of sitting there thinking, I, I think I'll, I'll figure this out myself. I'll think yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, still some of the, the women I speak to, it depends on where, very much where they are in the journey. Yeah. And, and some are very much of the, the mind because they're a bit older that, actually, well, I, I'm kind of to blame for this or this is, you know, I, I sh- should be in this position because I left it so late. So, you know what, I'll just figure this out or whatever. And that's, you know, that's, that's a tough, that's a lot of pressure to put on oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, and as suppose if it works out, then it, it, it it's okay. I guess yeah. it's at the point where, where after cycle after cycle, eventually it does mm-hmm. start, to, start, start to grate also had women who said okay well this you know this I don't want to be defined by this I'm not going to get obsessed by this I'm not going to you know let this take over my life but then again year after year you just see see the change just see the change Um, and and a lot of people don't really want to talk about it mainly I don't know whether that's partly denial I mean I know I denied it for for yep. quite a while you know I just thought it's going to be fine but also it's something I don't really necessarily want to talk about knowledge really knowledge exactly yeah. just don't want to feel like letting other people down like you're letting like mm-hmm. there's something wrong with you because mm-hmm. that's what people will say I can remember the conversations what's wrong with you you know what's wrong with you so so yes it's it's this it's just a it's a it's a unique set of circumstances I think living with yeah I think I was in denial as well for about two and a half years and it was a denial as in what you're saying I didn't want to go and see my GP about it because that means I'm acknowledging something is not quite right and obviously at the time I thought it was me but that kind of you sit with those feelings for so long and then like you're saying year after year month after month and before you know it you've done like years or 10 years or whatever it is so I get that. But on that note, then, when in the UK in particular, when should a couple seek help um, after trying for how long naturally? When should I be, any couple, when should they be thinking mm-hmm. something's not quite right here? Yeah, I think that there's there's two parts to this. One is the, the before part. I think that even though it should be like simple and natural to get pregnant, actually I actually think there's, there's 
it's a good idea. I think it's good practice to speak to a health professional beforehand before we even start trying to conceive, even three or six months before. We do have um, in your GP practice, they have a practice nurse, probably have a couple. And that's part of their, you know, their 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 scope of work is is mm-hmm. kind of prevention and so to make sure that you have your smear test before you have before you get pregnant to make yeah. sure that all of your immunizations are up to date that you have an sti screen if, if you haven't had one before mm. maybe your vitamin d checked as well and just to discuss whether you have any kind of predisposing factors that you need to be aware of so that yeah. you know when you should come because you'll be able to have that conversation when should i come or when would i would it be okay for me to come if um, something like like that? So, so I think there's no harm in, in going to see to see practice nurse because because it's not urgent. You can book to see yeah. them weeks ahead of time, um, mm-hmm. a few months before. But if you once you've actually started trying to conceive, it all depends on whether you have a condition that you're aware about that mm-hmm. could could affect your fertility, something like fibroids, yeah, endometriosis, or polycystic ovary syndrome so um if you have and your age um mm-hmm. so if you have a condition then you may hopefully have been advised to come sooner and that may be after six months of trying to conceive if you are 36 years or older again after six months whilst if you're a couple that's 35 years or younger then mm-hmm. after one year is the recommendation mm-hmm. and that's recommendation for investigation not necessarily for onward referral that's yeah. for investigation. That's to just see, is there something that could be treated, something that could be, you know, that we can find a reason behind this that mm. can be treated? Or can we just discuss, right? you know, whether you're doing this right? Are you having sex often enough? Are yeah. you, you know, that's um, often discussion. You know, some people might be having sex at the wrong time. They might be trying to Yes. Test when they ovulate and having sex on the day of ovulation, which is like a little bit too late. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're not even doing it correctly. So it's, it's that kind of just having that overview. And you can always do that again beforehand. You, so I just, I often get worried that so many couples suddenly start doing all this testing. They've never done it before. And they're suddenly expected to really understand their cycle in two, two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's impossible. <laughs> so it's a lot of pressure to put on again on on ourselves so that's why most gps nice guidelines recommend sex twice a week they're trying to say you don't it's not necessarily the evidence doesn't say that you need to time sex it Mm. says that the this these are the days where you're most likely to conceive in your cycle if your Mm -hmm. cycle is based on you know if your cycle's on 28 days or, or whatever but you need to understand your own cycle yeah I'm so glad you you've explained all that because that's the first time I would say that it's been told to me in that way sort of very clear and the different sort of factors that you know come into play and that sort of thing but I agree with you I think the work needs to happen or rather the discussions need to happen before you start trying the sooner we can get into that kind of pattern of behavior where we're just preparing for things in advance it, it can just yeah it can help a lot of things I think so yeah no thank you for for very clear there's an app called natural cycles which is yeah used um that many well some people use um they basically use a basal um yeah uh, temperature and and they're doing that as part of birth control and if you're there you've been doing it for birth control for many years then you know your cycle you really understand your cycle or if you've been doing fertility awareness for years 
yeah. then doing time sex makes more sense. But if you're just having to pick it up on day one, it's, um, yeah, it's just... It's, I went through everything. I went through all the apps, all the books. I went through everything trying to figure out. And I just, you know, like you're saying, you start and you're just so confused by everything and you don't know. You don't know if you're doing it right, and it just it just goes on. But yeah, no, I agree with you. And just back going back to like what you said about when people should be seeking help. Do you think a lot of black couples are aware of this? You know, the guidelines around how long you should wait. Uh, also, in terms of what is available to them once yeah. they make that kind of decision to come and speak to you as a GP. Do you think black couples in particular? Yeah, aware of this. When I think about, you know, my practice, my clinical practice as a GP, and I've always worked in, in a London GP, mm. sorry, actually generally in a London, there were some areas of times when I was working in out of London and Bexley. The areas that kind of, be, as those the ethnic minorities, the greatest ones were always black. And mm. I, can't think, I can't think of a single couple that I've counselled through the infertility process in my general practice. Mm. I was just thinking that maybe I couldn't, Maybe I have, but I just can't remember off the top of my head, which I think is quite astounding. And I think that's probably is the situation that mm-hmm. either people aren't going for help or or they don't yet yeah, don't know when to come for help, or maybe they're just going to other people for help. I don't know. Considering that most of my practice has been focused around exactly. women's health, that's yeah. What do you think some of those reasons for that are? Like, if people let's say let's use the example that people don't know what is available to them or don't know when they should be seeking help what do you think as a practitioner are some of the behind that yeah almost similar to to your experience I've heard on the fertility podcast then the same for me for me you know that part of it is that you have a, a strong faith that it will happen that it will mm-hmm. you know that that, that it, will, it will work out and that you know not to worry about it also I think if you do talk to other people because we do based a lot of our, our our decisions or amongst what you know our friends say and family and you know kind yeah. of taking that advice yeah. and and often people will come up with lots of stories of people that they've heard that have been fine you know, auntie's mm-hmm. friend or sister mm-hmm. sister something yeah. and you know so in a way almost led to be to doubt yourself that actually should I am I going to bother somebody with this should I not yeah. you know should I not worry the doctor about it I think of you know I'll, I'll be okay then six months goes by, oh, okay, I'll talk about it again. So I think there may be, you know, some of that. I think also many of us are dismissed, you know, when we've, or in the past we've been dismissed with symptoms that we've had and problems yeah. that we've had that sometimes you feel that actually maybe I'm not sick. So mm-hmm. is, is you know, will, will I be taken seriously? Will I be referred or will I get the help that I need? And there may be some doubts about that from, you know, previous past experiences. Yeah. So yeah. I think that there is a, there are a combination of factors, and and like we said earlier, that maybe people just don't know that help's available, yeah, um, and, and what type of help is available, and it doesn't always have to mean that you will have IVF. Exactly. You know? So it may be there may be simple changes that you can make to lifestyle that could make a difference, or yeah. you need to have a treatment, you know, yeah. see a gynecologist or something beforehand. So it just you know. Yeah. I think, it's just being able to feel comfortable about having that conversation with your GP initially. Yeah, I agree. I think in, in a lot of the discussions I've had, it appears that black people don't feel that, they one, they don't know what's available, but also they don't feel that it's for them. So mm-hmm. it, it's 
I don't know, going for an IUI or IVF, or whether it's just a conversation with your gynecologist, they don't feel that those services are made for them. And as such, like you're saying about, you know, you start to have doubts about, you know, being dismissed or not even being catered to or not being represented. And then you just think, well, actually, I'm not going to bother. It's sad, really, that that's the way it is. I hope, um, I think it's changing. I think, you know, the more we have these kind of conversations and different people taking note in the the fertility area, yeah, I hope it will change. And my other question was going to be around, why do you think then that black patients do not access treatment or access treatment much later? I don't know if you saw the HMBA report saying that, you know, black women are likely to get to that stage much later than their than their counterparts what what were your thoughts on that yes I, I mean I think many of the things that you just discussed probably come into play with that because I don't I'm not aware that you know black people in particular delay trying to conceive mm. per se I don't, I don't think that's the case I yeah. think it's about when they decide that actually this is really not working or this is not happening for me and, and I think literally all of those reasons that were mentioned before and I, and I do think faith does play into it as well you know mm-hmm. it does contri- contribute that mm-hmm. you know people may hope that it will just it will just happen and it will just work out and should I get medical you know intervention now or, or, or maybe even do I think about it is it even a thought does it even occur yeah. that this is a this could be a medical problem needs addressing so yeah yeah and when did you then make your decision to like after how long in your journey? Well, so mine's a little bit different because I had, I already had been to hospital and had emergency operation because I had a, a cyst, I had an emergency operation for a cyst that bled. And, and so during that operation, I had a laparoscopy, so it was a laparoscopy, and the consultant looked and saw the endometriosis inside. Mm-hmm. And I told her that we'd been trying to conceive. I think at that time it was six months. And she showed me the ultrasound where, you know, like I was ovulating and she'd seen the endometriosis and she'd said, you know, it doesn't look that bad. It doesn't look like it's going to affect you. And and actually I did become pregnant six months later. So in a way that, that was great. So then I, it was a, it was more about the miscarriage than. Uh, yeah. But but in a way, but when, when I had my first procedure for the miscarriage, I didn't bleed for six months and again I just get thinking okay well you've done gynecology you know that it could you know yeah. take some time okay well don't worry about it it'll be okay then when I just didn't get pregnant after a year that's when I went to see the doctor so for me it was a year but it was like a because I did become pregnant had the procedure yeah. didn't it, it was two years by the time all of that happened right so I started IVF pretty much straight away once I had been seen at the fertility clinic but I guess by this time I was yeah coming on to 36 it was it was two years yeah wow yeah and what role do you think doctors or the HFEA or even patients what role do you think we all have in making this information accessible and, and to kind of reduce all these factors that come into play when someone's delaying seeking treatment and how what roles roles do you play in making that a better yeah I mean it's good that I, I feel that more people are talking about it now than hmm. you know when when I was kind of in the depths of of it which was around kind of 2012 2013 hmm. and I think that and also I didn't know anything about you know social media I didn't use social media 
but I do feel that there's more, more conversation about it now, more awareness. And I just hope that as more people feel comfortable talking about it, that they will talk about it. And people will say, OK, well, we've been trying to conceive, you know, and, and that could be a normal conversation rather yes. than, you know, rather than not talking about it. And then just, you know, having a miscarriage and staying in silence and not telling anybody because you feel a bit guilty and ashamed. And yes. um, so I think part of that is if if we can talk then and as we become more aware, then we will say, oh, well, did you know you could get help? Or did you know that you could see your GP after six months if you've had, you know, if you have endometriosis, fibroids or something, you know, and that you can be investigated. So yeah. I think the more conversation we have, the more, I think that all these public health campaigns, they, they help, but ultimately most people will listen to their yeah. friends and close family. And that's yeah. part of the reason why my, my you know, company's called Your Trusted Squad, because it's, it's, mm-hmm. I just recognise that people need to talk to people who are in their squad, who are in their close circle, yeah. rather yeah. than a government announcement or something. It just doesn't yeah. quite, quite relate to them in the same way, yeah. or they don't relate to it in the same way. I agree, yeah. That was one of the recommendations I actually made to um, the HOVA when the report came out, that if there is going to be any campaign, they need to be going to the matriarchs of people's families, the leaders in people's churches, and, and those are the people you've got to be, I guess, speaking to because those are the um, trusted squad actually that people go to in these times and if they're ill-informed and then they're just saying the same thing to the to the people that are coming to them then none of, none of the stuff that's happening outside is going to matter so i really i completely agree with that so as i say and the, unfortunately these are the areas where you can also get the wrong information um, we can often hear the wrong information the hairdressers like at the church yeah. so, so it's it's you really want to get the right information in the in where yeah. where it where the influence is greatest, which it really is just yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And how about doctors then? So, do doctors like let's say if I came with my husband to you, maybe we weren't being quite I don't know straight up about the fact that we've been trying for so long. Do you do you make prompts I guess with your patients to kind of help them move things along? Um. Well, yeah. So you could just ask the direct question: When did you start trying? When did you stop contraception? Because you may have been on contraception before. How long have you been together for? Possibly how long we've been living together? Because mm-hmm. you know I have had couples come and they haven't even been living together so you know there's there's all kinds of people come from all different different backgrounds so so yes you do have to ask lots of lots of questions um to understand and you do have to ask about frequency of sex um because it's it's relevant or whether sex or there's a problem with having sex you know whether it's difficult to have sex whether it's painful to have sex Mm -hmm. um so there's a lot to explore around around sex so yes definitely have to ask those kind of more probing personal questions and together like you just said you have to go together it's not a conversation just to have with the woman and the man you know it's really together yeah and from your perspective what are the things that you wish patients knew before they come to you or before they enter sort of and IVF and that sort of thing what they wish they knew before but I'm interested as a as a doctor and that side of things what do you wish patients knew yeah I only wish they, they did know that that it takes having fertility treatment can take such a huge toll on you personally emotionally mm-hmm. socially with your friends with family and um, just general social life you know that just 
simple things can feel difficult you know simple things like going to a kid's birthday party or christening or a baby shower it's it's different it it can become different and and as we said the biggest thing is is just to to find out more about it and to to talk to other people who who can really empathize who've been in a similar situation because then you'll know that you won't have to feel so guilty for how you're feeling that Mm. how you feel can be natural that yeah I think yeah. part of it is, you know, you do feel bad for stay, staying at home or for trying to avoid certain situations which which feel uncomfortable with. But but actually, when you hear that more and more people, other people yeah. are in the same situation, it can just help you give you that reassurance that you're not, you know, going yeah. mad or that, that there's not yeah. something wrong with you. Yeah. So that's I think the mental health side is just right. so understated, and I think that's just something you have to pay attention to. And that is looking after yourself physically you know doing things that you enjoy trying not to kind of postpone life as much as possible and then yes being aware of trusted software trusted sources of information are and just not to to listen to everything that's out there because there's a lot some of it is better (laughs) better quality so so yeah I really do it's interesting that said that because that's the one thing that a lot of people wish they knew before is that sort of the toll it can take on you? And though people, you know, you do get prepared, like, oh, they do tell you it's going to be really hard, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's a one-second or two-second conversation. And because mm-hmm. they, they've got other things to work on. But I think, yeah, I wish there was something or a service or that was widely available just to kind of prepare you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot. It's true. When you go to the fertility clinic, you don't talk about all those other aspects. Yeah. Even, even if you do have a session with the counsellor, that's not really yeah. what you discuss. Or maybe you don't think about it right at the beginning because you think I'm going to be okay, this is going to happen, there's so much hope. Yeah. Um, then maybe after second or third cycle, the kind of service attention isn't there. So, you know, it isn't there yeah. quite in the same way. So, yeah. yeah. So the HFEA report, it showed the different outcomes for different ethnicities. And one of the arguments was, should we, should should the HFEA be providing tailored success for Black women? I might have been holding on to the fact that it's a, I don't know, 29% success rate. Should, but maybe that's not even true for someone of my, so no. is argument to provide tailored success rate? So maybe it's like 25 for me is that useful is that helpful to be providing page yeah i mean it does it is miserable if you kind of go into your treatment thinking well because i'm black i'm not going to you know have as much you know i'm going to have a lower success rate than this person with similar circumstances and and it's tricky because there are so many different factors that come into play with your with your success rate Mm-hmm. You know, anyway, you as an individual. So from the FHEA, they're just they're pub- publishing all the data from all the clinics across the UK. And I think it is helpful to have the success rates, or I think it would be helpful to have a success rate divided by ethnicity. Um, mm. I think it is important to be aware of. And, mm. and I think in a way, it could help, it could contribute towards helping, you know, kind of monitor the type of service that we do get and see whether there are those kind of discrepancies or whether we do possibly respond to drugs in a different way or, you know, that it could just lead on to other, you know, other research. So I think that's that's a, a positive of, of dividing it. But I think mm-hmm. for each of us individually, when we're in that clinic, 
that really they should be giving us a you know a guidance or a rate based on our yeah circumstances including medical history and age and all those factors yeah i really agree with that i think that's lacking at the moment yeah yeah and then in, in, in the same for black patients had lower birth, IVF birth rates what are some of the reasons behind this i know there's a big campaign around this as well but from your traditional perspective what are some of the reasons why we're having lower birth rates as black women or black couples birth rates as ivf um, I, so yeah. from ivf treatment so are we having, I mean, the, the reports, they give a, a number of reasons, possible reasons, but the problem is, is that we don't really know, you know, that that bit hasn't been looked into. It's almost like, well, we've, had, we've got this finding and it would be good to understand why. And part of that's what I was saying before is, is, is um, when I say birth rates, birth rates are taking you obviously through the whole, whole of your pregnancy. So you're becoming pregnant mm-hmm. and then going through your whole pregnancy. And we know that, that you know black women are now four times more likely to to die than than before it was five times before and and just generally in terms of access to antenatal services uh, maybe even support and again that may even be mental health support during mm. uh, monitoring support i mean i know from when i've been in hospital that often my parameters have been very very well even though i haven't felt very well and they there's certain things that have been ignored as well um, yeah. that actually shouldn't be ignored, but but yeah. there's maybe that same kind of, okay, well, you'll be okay. You look mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. You look healthy. So yeah. therefore you're going to, you know, because we do look young. Yeah. We really look young. We do look healthy. We do look, yeah. you know, we, yeah. um, we don't, our skin colour doesn't change. We don't get that paleness unless we, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, I yeah. think there's a lot around, just generally in terms of physicians knowing how to how to to look after or to care for people mm-hmm. different color skin um that that can also impact on this as well yeah and there was also um one of the factors was the tubal factors that are higher now I, I feel like this is so prevalent that and i feel like nothing is being done about it. yeah that again comes into this is like way back, you know, from, from when you're a teenager, you're thinking about, you know, about about having sex, about using protection or about if you do become pregnant, what kind of care do you get? Mm-hmm. Where do you seek, you know, seek help and how do you seek help? How if you do require a termination of pregnancy, you know, mm-hmm. where are you getting it done? Is it, you know, through safe, mm-hmm. safe means and are you? being protected against infections and yes. um, whether they be sexually transmitted infections or infections related to mm-hmm. to um, procedures but that's generally what what the tubal factor is related to is, is generally pelvic inflammatory disease which is mm-hmm. chlamydia and gonorrhea and then you know kind of infections um, mm-hmm. in the womb which may be related to operations or procedures mm-hmm. so yes condoms aren't just to prevent you from becoming pregnant they help you know, yeah. protect you against sexually transmitted disease. If you're able to, you know, if you're not being coerced into having sex or, you know, the, and if you are being coerced into having sex, are you being able to, have you been able to get the help that you needed, the support yeah. afterwards? Did you feel able to get that support afterwards and mm-hmm. be able to get checked? Yeah. So that, that again, it, it, this is all the education that you need when you're in your teens or the, the support. Uh, 
this is where all the gossip comes in and you've probably told yeah. me okay and you don't need to worry and you know um but yeah. actually just you know so there's so now it's easy to get tests done at home if you are asymptomatic it's easy to get you know tests done if you are symptomatic to get mm-hmm. the treatment done at an early stage um mm-hmm. so hopefully you can prevent getting these diseases later yeah. on and for us to know that you can get these diseases later on if you don't get treated early because even now as you're speaking it just made me think we don't think about our health as a a timeline we think about it right now so right now is good or whatever then that's fine but actually yeah. what you do right now can have an impact exactly as you were talking it just made me realize that we don't think about it in that way mm-hmm. and that's big- where it matters that's where yeah it makes the difference yeah exactly exactly okay do you think that the, the lower outcomes for black women do you think there's a lack of family referral practitioners um, do you think that plays a part at all i don't know whether that's i'd be just you know that's that's there's data to to show that women aren't being referred or whether because there's women soon being referred to a fertility clinic and then referred on for fertility treatment um and then what happens if you do have a condition like fibroids is it being treated or not um because mm-hmm. it, it obviously depends on the type of fibroids whether you're mm-hmm. you know you'll be recommended to have treatment or not or if you have a condition like endometriosis it may not be diagnosed for many years or it may not be diagnosed at all i think that's where it's even worse if it's not diagnosed at all so so yes, in terms of referral, it may be that there is a, d- a delay, again, a delay in terms of women being receiving the treatment, well, ass- assessment and treatment um, for fertility treatment, yes. So, because even the age one is similar, so because we're accessing treatment later, I, I guess my point, is this something, is there an intervention that can be done that is tailored? What I'm saying, is this possible? where there's an intervention that can be done that is tailored towards, I guess, ethnic minorities. It's quite difficult because then how do you know who wants to have a baby if you're going to do an intervention? If you're able to have your investigations early on and you know that there's tubal factor problems, then to be fair that there aren't really, I mean, you may be able to have surgery and, you know, to, to possibly open up the tube, but that may be a possibility, but you're more likely to require IVF. That's mm. so. So if you had a, you know, if we're, ha- we're ensuring that maybe that now we know that you know black women are more likely to have tubal factor, that we ensure that more women are are mm. investigated. Um, mm-hmm. So the investigations could be potentially tailored, or that everybody has the, the full set of investigations. For for instance, I didn't, as I said, I didn't have that diagnostic laparoscopy, and I know I had endometriosis. Um, and if I hadn't had the the emergency procedure. I still don't know whether I would have had the diagnostic laparoscopy. Yeah. I probably wouldn't, you know. And yeah. even that diagnostic laparoscopy I had was done privately because I'd been in the NHS hospital and they had ignored my need for treatment for days and days. So it was, you know, it's um yeah I, I feel it's probably a bit more of that type of you're not really getting necessarily all the, the investigations that you need when you need them. Yeah. And and therefore it's just taking longer. You have to push a bit harder, probably. Yeah. I, and I have to be careful because I obviously I'm a doctor and I and I, no, I yeah. based on evidence and it's difficult when I don't have the evidence. But I do have my own experiences and that has been my own experience all the way yeah. through. You know, I've been turned home, gone to Amy when I was pregnant with pain and I was turned away. Um, mm-hmm. And I just went to another Amy because I just didn't want to argue and I wasn't feeling well. But you know, there's 
I'm a doctor and I know that a pregnant woman who has pain should not be turned away from an A&E, you know, so, um, so, yeah. and, and many people may not know that and they might have gone home. And there's a, so it's, yeah. I, think, I think there's a lot, lot of that type of okay. you know, yeah. experience like that. Yeah, and it's quite sad because you, know, you, you were a doctor and you know that, but for a lot of us, people don't know, I might not question it at all because I'm like, well, they know what they're doing, <laughs> supposedly. And home, and you know things just keep happening. So yeah, it's it's quite sad though, really. But I am hoping that you know with the report and a lot of different campaigns going on, that things it will inform the behaviours, policy, or whatever it is that will change a lot of it for us. I am yeah. hoping that's the case. It definitely there's there's more discussion around it now. I think it's being mm-hmm. taken definitely more seriously. Yeah, for race and yeah. diversity and treatment, just generally the the, the whole topic of infertility um, and miscarriage and how it affects women in the workplace as well. There's so many different areas that it, you know, that it, affect, it impacts on, on all of us. And... So a hot topic amongst patients and doctors is the double embryo transfers. Yeah. So based on, you know, before, black women are four times more likely to die from multiple births or what's your position what are your thoughts on mm-hmm. embryo transfers and also do you think people are aware of the risks it's interesting i mean i think about my experience of when i had i mean i've had nine cycles total mm-hmm. and i know with everyone we had that conversation about you know single and i was always recommended single and i didn't want single. i didn't have a single trans- embryo transfer all of mine were double and i had my last one was triple so mm. i had three um transferred and i still i only become pregnant once i only conceived once with um a one ivf cycle okay. um, and i've had four miscarriages so three times i conceived naturally no. so i i do believe and i don't know but my experience was that we did have the discussion we did talk about the risks of multiple births and it's difficult because now we do know that with, with black women, our success rates are lower. So almost you need to know why, why are our success rates lower? Because to be able to, to inform you on whether to have that single transfer, you need to know whether it's related to your transfer, whether it's related to the stimulation. Why are we having lower success rates? Because I looked at the figures and the HFBA report, and even though the, the multiple birth rate was higher in black women um, as like as a proportion of this of the double versus single embryo transfer there wasn't really that much difference in fact I wrote it down okay yeah somewhere it's over there so I think there was about 38 percent success rate also sorry no, 38 percent of multiple birth rates um, and I think that was much that was lower by about I think about I think it was compared to 28 or something like that. There was It was lower in, in white and 14%, that was it. So 14% multiple birth rate. And in white and Asian, it was 11%. And that this is all, that was multiple birth rate. But with, when you looked at the actual double transfer, we had 46% of cases of using double transfer. It's 46% in black. 38% in white and 39% in Asian. So there's quite a difference, 46% of double compared to 14% multiple yeah. births. That's, yeah. That's quite, you know, I'm, I mean, I haven't done the maths to see, you know, the, yeah, the, the yeah, margin yeah. of error and that, but I just think yeah. that's, you know, it's not saying that 
we have a significantly higher multiple yeah. birth rate compared to the, to yeah. the number of double transfers. So um, there's just a lot we just don't understand about it. And whilst it's safer to have the single transfer, and that's now what's being you know recommended, especially in your first cycle for yeah everybody everybody now so it's not even you yeah know, it's only really if you have repeated failed cycles that you're you're able to have the double transfer um, yeah yeah that was the case we don't know yeah. <laughs> i think i i think what you said is key though about when it depends how, how far along your journey you are but for most people you want to increase your chances as much as possible mm. of having a baby so if you be, my mind as a patient, putting two in just, you know, instead of one, it just, I mean, it gives me a bit of a higher chance. But for me, I was told about the day of my transfer. And at that point, it's too late. I'm already planning the baby room. I'm already, you know, I'm way ahead. And I just couldn't take in the risk at that point because I just wanted a baby. And mm. I wanted 14 days time to have a positive pregnancy test from one of those embryos at least. Okay. You know, so I think the the desire for what we want sometimes, for me anyway, it it, it outweighs whatever risks they can tell me at that point because I'll just mm. do this again. So please, just yeah, it's one of those. It's quite hard to balance and the the importance of it. But even going back, we've had three cycles. The last one was a double embryo transfer because I asked for it and my doctor was happy to do it. But I think moving forward, and we've got six embryos left, so. I can't imagine doing that six times. I'd rather do it three times. Yeah. It's just there's a lot more to it than just like, you know, if you keep just one twins, I think the desire you can't downplay the desire to want a baby. Yeah, exactly. I think that the reality is when you're putting two, do you really think you're gonna get twins? I mean, not exactly. really. You think actually I just want to have one baby and yeah. you know, if I'm gonna have better chances of having that one baby or yeah. believe I'm going to have better chances if I have that double transfer yeah. when when I was over 40 I had the, the triple transfer yeah so yeah. you know it was um that's exactly it you're just thinking I just want to and I don't want to keep doing this <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so tiring and I keep putting on exactly. weight and I'm exhausted and you know, and you think, okay, well, there's a lot of good modern medicine out there, but but actually, you know what? There are some horrific stories of yeah. women who lost lost one of their children or lost yeah. both. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so so yes, but really, at that time when you're making that decision, it is I just want to become pregnant. Yeah. And I want to cross that bridge when I come to it. <laughs> you know, I just want to. One at a time, literally. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> And what about the uh, the donor side of things? So I can't really remember the, the stats, but I knew that for there was much less representation of black people in the donor pools. Oh yes. But I mean, what what kind of what can be done to to improve? Because it's one thing talking about idea, but to say to get people to be donating eggs and you know sperm or whatever, I think that's that's another. It's another level, and I just I, I don't know like what what kind of things can be done to to improve that. Mm. It's it's interesting because I you know I'd never thought of donating my eggs when I was in my twenties, and it's something yeah. I yeah. never thought about. And so it's it's something that could you know that could be discussed more, and so people even just know what it involves. Mm -hmm. um, again, you can think well, 
everything that affects a woman generally is just not pleasant and you know actually how difficult is this what are the implications for me and my future fertility I, I'm say, not saying me but I'm saying if I was to donate yeah. my egg these yeah. are quite the questions I would be asking yeah. Um, yeah. and if there was information about that um, and the fact that there is a shortage of, of donors. I mean, you have the same thing with, you know, bone marrow. Yeah. And we're all aware that there's, you know, a shortage of, of black bone marrow donors and, and people, yeah. you know, there has been more promotion around that. So you could do the, the, the same the same type of work. Um, and, and back to what you were discussing, again, it does come back into the com kind of community, discussing it amongst communities, but having the right information that's being... Yeah, rather than kind of some horror stories because <laughs> that's what we always hear about the horror stories and and not how yeah. that how it can help people and how you know it can be um relatively low risk process for you yeah. if you're going to do it once or yeah and yeah. also the ethical implications you know potential implications because there are definitely a number of women that are donating eggs in Nigeria, in Ghana, in, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, there's just a different type of, I suppose, incentive and awareness. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah, I agree. And, and just around the whole general, like, fertility information, what do you think are the best channels to, to reach ethnic minorities? Mm. What we've discussed today for example what are what channels should we or what channels are the best way to what do you think it's it's interesting because i had this not really something i had thought about you know being a doctor i just you know i speak to my patients on that individual basis never really thought about it so much in that kind of public health kind of wider yeah. wider scale um even you know with the services that i've you know run it's always been like a patient experience group or a patient a group but actually there there's more to it and as I've been doing my recent work and seeing how the impact that even social media has yeah. um, you know, it's, yeah. and, and in a way that can be dangerous I do you know it's yeah. positive and it's you know and it's risks um but so I feel that there should be more you know there could be more on I guess maybe trusted sources on on, on social media that are promoted with Google, when you Google, actually, it's just generally the powerhouses that kind of yeah. come first. And if you've got a big marketing budget, then you can push over yeah. everybody, whether your information is credible or not. So, so yes, it comes back to the, the community again, I think, you know, to, to try and get some real ambassadors mm. in, in, those, in the community that, that can provide those kind of those messages, mm -hmm. relay, those in, in, relay that information. And as more, you know, I think as doctors, you know, we could do more to talk um, at schools and, you know, yeah. churches, etc. Yeah. yeah, that would be quite good, actually. That's a really good one. Like churches, especially. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh. And actually, the church is often where it feels probably harder to talk about it. I don't know that that's yeah. the case. Yeah. But, you know, I've definitely had people, you know, pray and fasters mm -hmm. and praise but generally you know the bible does say none should be barren and so they think well okay mm -hmm. oh well what happens here then um so yeah it's uh, is it is it a space where it can be talk spoken about openly it should but i don't know whether it 
yeah it's tricky it's it's definitely a tricky you, you know you can talk about diabetes or asthma topic with with this amount of stigma yeah attached to it. just in your in your journey how have you managed the stigma um and and then what also made you what made you feel compelled i'm going to speak about this openly and do something mm-hmm. with it yeah, um, I mean, I, I I remember there was a podcast, I think, where you mentioned that actually, you know, many people that speak about infertility tend to do so once they've had their child, mm-hmm. they come back after it. And I suppose I, oh, I'd, I'd always intended to be that person. Me too. Um, <laughs> and just after a while, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm still not there yet. Yeah. Um, but all the while, this is becoming more, this is becoming huge part of me. This is, you know, you cannot talk about Belinda or think about Belinda without acknowledging uh, right. that I've lost my children, that I've lost a part of my life and part of, you know, my career because yeah. of infertility and, and miscarriage. So actually, I need to talk about me. This is me. <laughs> so it's got to come out as part of me now. So that's where I suppose I felt started to feel more comfortable talking about it because mm-hmm. it felt wrong not to. It felt like I was denying part of me. Right. I can say something. And how did yeah. you manage? Um, I don't know if you had experienced a lot of stigma. Yeah, I have been blessed. I mean, my mother-in-law, my mum always said to me that you're so lucky that your mother-in-law has not told your husband to leave you. I mean, she said that to me so many times um, because... You know, because the, there is a lot of pressure, you know, in, in the culture to be the perfect wife, which includes being nice and fertile and mm-hmm. doing all these kids and you've got the family, the big family and the big belly and everything. And, um, and, and I've never had that pressure from my family. and I've never had that pressure from my husband. And so I feel grateful because of that. That's mm-hmm. helped a lot. You know, I think work was a, difficult one I think that I felt I felt a lot of pressure and I probably put a lot of pressure on myself to not say anything because I felt fear increased fear of being discriminated against fear of losing my job yeah fear of being treated differently and being blamed for things you know you know just being pointed out yeah so so that was a lot of, of, of pressure so in terms of you know, there's always the ignorance, there's always the people that will, you know, kind of make their judgments that you shouldn't be, you know, worried about it or that you should just adopt or you should do whatever they think you should do. Um, and, you know, I've had to to really process a lot of that and to, I have, you know, lost, I mean, not many, but maybe a few, of one very close friendship because I just kept feeling. Right upset from from things that that my friend kept saying over and over but Mm. but generally it was a matter of just thinking what what am I doing or what can I do to to make me feel that I have done everything I possibly can yeah you know that feels right for us you know that that's that's exactly what we had to do is just think this does this feel right now does this feel and then I'm at peace with it and you can say whatever you want to say now. <laughs> and how did you seek balance, or how do you seek balance? Because 
obviously the weight of infertility, IVF, whatever it's treatment and everything else. And then you still have to be a wife. You still have to, you know, work or be a good friend or, you know, how are you? Mm-hmm. How do you yeah. make yourself get that balance like, for yourself? I'm not sure whether I have the, yeah, I think it's a balance for myself, maybe not necessarily the balance for other people. Yeah. I know I definitely haven't been as sociable um, yeah. you know, in the last 10 years than I, than I have, than I would have been. And that's not necessarily strictly true because with my endometriosis, I did get quite a bit of fatigue generally anyway. So I do have to acknowledge there are times when I'm just sick and I don't have energy to do things. And I did find a lot of help um, with practicing yoga because yoga, with practicing yoga, you practice mindfulness, practice meditation, practice just calmness and just being more aware of yourself and what you need as, a, as an individual. And I have to communicate yeah. that with my husband sometimes when he says, oh, it's another person. And I'm like, okay, I need, I need to prepare for this. <laughs> I, mean, I need to, I can't just, you know, do a last minute.com, um, you know, attendance. I need to, yeah. and I just know this is how I have to be. So that's just the way yeah. it is. So that's how I've had to achieve the balance. It, it is ongoing. I'd love to say that I'm all open and all, amazingly but I'm not <laughs> no I get it I, I get it I think it's, it's changed me in the same way I'm not as sociable and I don't even want to be that's the difference before I really I've always wanted to be out there but now I don't even want to be and you know I'm not I'm not sad about anything I, I think it's 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 what you said is what we need and this has taught me to be quite I mean it's not selfish but I have to make decisions for myself because you know I want to be able to keep my head above the water sort of thing. So, so no, I agree with you. I think um, it changes you, but I think sometimes you can learn to love the changes and, and all of it, you know? Exactly, exactly. Still so many, you know, it's still blessed in so, so many ways. Exactly. Like, like a great life generally. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I don't feel sad that, you know, I'm not doing X or I'm not doing, if I really want to do X, I will do it. Yeah. My best friend is having a baby shower. I'm there. You know, I just have to prepare for it. That's all. You know, it's just different. So, yeah. <laughs> so any last words for anybody listening, whether it's from your own personal experience or as a as a doctor, um, any sort of advice, affirmations, any sort of last words? Yes, um, I just encourage to really empathize with each other. Just to, it's easy to make judgments, but it's better to listen um, and to hear what other people are experiencing. And that's not just with infertility, that's almost any illness, just to to listen. So I just encourage people to listen um, because then as you listen and learn, you can be in a better position to to empathise and to provide support. And the more you talk and the more you listen, the more you'll be able to share some, you know, some real stories or to, to really help encourage people to be able to seek the help that they need because that's what ultimately we want is we want to raise more awareness but we want to do it in a way that is you know that is accurate and and helpful so um so i encourage you not to as much as possible not to keep you know it all held in to talk to people that you trust about problems that you're experiencing and and to talk to other people who are experiencing it so that you don't feel that you're all alone Great. So how can people find you and connect with you? Uh, so I am on Instagram. So you can um, 
send a direct message through Instagram at your trusted squad. Also have website which is www.yourtrustedsquad.com. Um, so all my email addresses are, are available on there. Yeah, I think that's probably simpler than going info at yourtrustedsquad.com. And yeah, just come on, check out web website. There's lots of free information on there. And yeah, just get to get to know me a bit more and I'll get to know you a bit more. No, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and then giving your perspective and your experience. Thank you so much for sharing your story as well. I don't take that for granted at all. Thank you. Thank you.